Gracious Father, we know that you are speaking to us. Give us ears to hear. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. Please be seated. One of the great questions of life is who controls me? Who controls me? The issue of control pops up in virtually all of our relationships and most of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. One of the signs of, of, of adolescence and of a young person moving into adulthood is the parent-child battle for control. Children want to take it and parents find it hard to give it up. Actors wrestle with directors about who's in control. Employees go on strike and employers lock out workers often over the issue of who's in control. Artists and and benefactors grapple with the issue of who's in control and who's going to decide what the art form is going to end up looking like. Marriages are disrupted And corrupted and even destroyed because husband and wife battle for control. And churches fracture and split over the question of control. And in the realm of the spirit, as Christians, we wrestle with God about control. Actually, control of our lives is not just one issue among many for a Christian or for a person contemplating being a Christian. It's the issue that's at the heart of all that God intends for us and for all that God calls his followers to be. The scriptures paint many pictures and record many teachings about that perspective and this issue of control between us and God And one such picture, one such teaching is found in this passage of the 11th and 12th chapters of Mark's gospel. Actually, the story begins just a bit earlier than even we began our reading this morning. This parable in chapter 12 is preceded by the events that Mark describes in chapter 11. And chapter 11 begins by telling us about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry of what we now call Palm Sunday. The people give to Jesus this messianic welcome, and he receives it. The next day, Jesus goes to the temple, and he drives out the people who are bilking all of the others in the name of God in the temple. This, This disruptive nature of the temple that they've created in the one place where the Gentiles may come and pray, and Jesus throws them out. As you might well imagine, it doesn't set real well with the religious folk. And so when Jesus returns to the temple later, the religious folk demand that they get that he answer to them the authority by which he's doing these things. Who do you think you are coming in here and telling us what's right and what's wrong? Who do you think you are disrupting our business? Who do you think you are to tell us what to do? Who do you think you are, Jesus? But instead of answering their question about authority, Jesus turns the question on them. 
He says, I'll tell you what, guys. I'll answer your question if you answer mine. And here's my question. Was John the Baptist a messenger of God or was he just a really good guy? Who do you think, who do you think John was? Now, Jesus, by this question, throws them into this great dilemma and they immediately recognize this catch-22. And so they these, hear these uh, great religious minds of Israel all huddled together trying to come up with an answer. If they say that John is from God, then of course Jesus is going to ask, then why did you reject him? And if they say he's just a pretty good guy, they're afraid the people are going to revolt because they're sure he's from God. And so they're in a quandary to know what to do. You get the impression when you read this that they know the answer. They know John's from God. They just don't want to admit it. They know all along that there's something special about John that they see in no one else. It's evident that John speaks the truth of God, that the Spirit of God is upon him. They know the truth. That's not the issue. The issue is they don't want to admit to the truth. They don't want what John is offering because John's teachings are an affront to the power that they have worked so hard to gain and now to hang on to. They reject John because he confronts their ungodly behavior. The religious leaders are far less concerned about right and wrong than with wielding their power. So here are the most learned men of Israel gathered in a circle discussing, whispering, arguing, debating, trying to come up with a good answer to really a pretty simple question for any honest person. They can't come up with an answer. At least not an answer that will make them look good and make Jesus look bad. And so they turn back to Jesus and say, we don't know. We don't know where John's from. You know, sometimes I don't know is the most profound answer you can give to a question. There are people who, I don't know, because of insecurity or arrogance, never want to say, I don't know. So they'll answer something, anything, to get to the question that they have no clue what the answer is. And I guess that they they feel like if you just say it with enough authority, people are going to believe you know what you're talking about. Sometimes the most profound answer we can give to someone is, I don't know. But that's not the case here. The religious leader's answer is not a recognition that there are some things too great for us to fully comprehend. Their answer is a cowardly rejection of what they know is right and true about God and about his messengers. And it's because their answer is a rejection of truth that Jesus says, okay, you don't want to answer my question, then I'm not going to answer yours. But what I find interesting is that when you keep reading, you discover that Jesus really does answer their question. He doesn't answer it directly like they're wanting, but he answers it, he answers it with a story. With one of those revolutionary, confrontational, drop the hammer on you through the back door kind of stories. Most of Jesus' stories are like that. And Jesus tells a story about a wealthy landowner who who plants a vineyard. 
And when it's completed, he goes back to his hometown some distance away and leaves it in the care of some local farmers. When the harvest time comes, the owner sends a servant to collect his share of the vineyard's fruit, fully expecting that these farmers will uphold their part of the agreement. But they don't. When the servant asks for his master's share, they beat him and send him home empty-handed. The master sends another servant. They beat him and send him back empty-handed. He sends a third servant. And this one they kill. Now, you'd think maybe the master at this point is going to say, all right, we've got to change our strategy here. But he doesn't. He sends more servants. I suspect not a lot of hands went up real fast when he asked for the next volunteer to go get his fruit. But he keeps sending them. And every one of them either ends up beaten or murdered. Until there's only one person left to send. Now you would think that the landowner would say, I am not sending my son. I am not risking my son's well-being, much less his life, for these good-for-nothings. I'm not putting him in jeopardy for them. He's my only son. His life is going to be in danger. And you would think that's what he would say. But instead, the landowner says, I'm going to send my son. Because maybe they haven't thought the servants really represented me, but they'll know when my son arrives, he is the very presence of me. They'll respect my son. They'll do the right thing when they see him. But instead of respecting the son, they grab him and they murder him too. And they believe that somehow eliminating the son means that the vineyard is now theirs. And Jesus finishes the story and he turns to the religious leaders and he asks, now what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to these rebellious, evil men? I think that question is key to understanding the parable and the larger message of this whole encounter. What will the owner of the vineyard do to these rebels? What's the appropriate response of the owner to this kind of insubordination, to these acts of treason, to the murder of the owner's son? You get the feeling when you read this story that maybe the owner isn't going to do anything. Hasn't done much up to this point. We probably would have acted much sooner than this. He just keeps sending more servants. And the farmers seem to believe that they can do whatever they want and get away with it. But when they reject the son, everything changes. And everyone standing there listening to Jesus' story, they know that there's only one answer. Do to these rebellious, evil men what they did to the son. No more Mr. Nice Guy. And I think this is the kind of story that you read when you get to the end of it and, and you read what the owner does to, this, to these people that bothers us in our culture that values nice about, above about anything else. I don't know if you saw it or not, but this week, actor Sharon Stone got into trouble with the Chinese government and people of China and the fashion design company Christian Dior, whom she's a spokeswoman and a model. 
She got herself in hot water because she suggested in an interview that the May 12th earthquake in the interior of China caused more than 68,000 fatalities could have been the result of bad karma because of how China has been treating the Dalai Lama. She said, they're not being nice to the Dalai Lama, and he's my friend. And then all this earthquake and, and all this happened, and I thought, is that karma? When you're not nice, bad things happen to you? She has since apologized for that statement, but we all recognize her point of view in our culture, in our society. Anyone who isn't being nice, including God, isn't a good person, isn't a worthy God. It's all about being nice. Now, I'm as much for nice as anyone. I think our world needs more people who are nice. We need more people who are known for being nice. I think the world would be a better place if more people were committed to being nice. But the kingdom of God really isn't about being nice. It's about truth and love. And sometimes love means being honest and holding people accountable. And the parable tells us that in the kingdom of God, eventually our chances run out. The scriptures declare hundreds of times and hundreds of ways that God's character is grace and love and forgiveness and mercy. We read it over and over and over again. But the scriptures also tell us that there is a time when God gives people what they deserve. The scriptures tell us that our choices have consequences. And here's the point of the parable that I think we might tend to miss. Jesus isn't speaking to pagans here. Jesus isn't addressing his comments in the story or this ultimate question to people who have no knowledge of God. Jesus is addressing this story and the question and his comments to the one group of people who ought to know better but don't. He's talking to the religious people. And that ought to cause us to sit up and take notice. Because I would guess that by and large, we are a group of religious people. People who ought to know better. God's not speaking to people here who don't know right from wrong. He's not responding to a group of people who have no idea about the expectations that God has for them. He's talking to the very people who've been given the responsibility to represent him and to people who claim to represent him. But they don't. They believe that, that renting from God means running the place and doing whatever they want, even rejecting God and designing their lives without a thought of God, and there are no consequences to that. And God has warned them and warned them and warned them. And the parable tells us that many servants, prophets, messengers, John the Baptist, come to tell people the owner's message. Come to get what, is right, what rightfully belongs to the owners, to the owner, and look how they're treated. And now the son has come. 
The one for whom maybe they will change their mind and their behavior, but they reject him too. You get to the end of the story and you find that the religious leaders, as you might imagine, are pretty upset with Jesus. And they're upset because they know the stories about them. They don't deny that for a moment. They are rejecting Jesus' warning because they want to be in control. Because they want to do whatever they want to do because they believe that you can be a follower of God and retain control of your life. But this parable tells us that we don't really understand what it means to be a follower of God if we don't understand that our life is on loan from God. And that when you become a follower of of God, you give up rights to your life. You become, in essence, a renter in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not about God surrendering to us. It's about us obeying and surrendering to him. We exist at the pleasure of God, but we're so self-centered and so self-focused that we often ignore that truth. We love to be independent. Oswald Chambers says, whenever God touches sin, it is independence that's touched. And that awakens resentment in the human heart. And our independence, our wrestling for ownership of our life is rooted in our desire to control our lives. We want to be in control because we realize that when God's in control, you never know what's going to happen. And that worries us. And so someone has said, when God God calls the shots, people turn into prophets and mountains get cast into the sea and dead men come back to life. And we tend to think better we should be in control and have some idea what's coming next than God in control and not know at all what's going to happen. And I suspect most of us are not going to reject God outright like the religious people in the story. But we still seek control. And we control by thinking we can limit, believing that we can limit the way God can and can't work. And what God can and can't do that that only makes sense to us and only fits our perspective of God. So when God brings someone or some event into our lives that we could never have dreamed to be from God... We bristle and fight and reject. And in our battle for control, we miss what God wants to say or do or reveal to us. I recently read a story about a woman who who grew up very poor and uh, then married a, a very wealthy man. And, and it was, she had a great life. In her mind, it was It was ideal. She and her husband had a great marriage. They had, some, they had lovely children. Things were perfect. And then suddenly she became physically ill. And she went to the hospital and the doctors were running all sorts of tests. And one night the doctor came into her room with this long look on his face. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your liver has stopped working. She said, doctor, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that I'm dying? He said, I I can't tell you really 
much more than what I said. Your liver has stopped working. We've done everything we can to start it. And he walked out of the room. She said, I knew I was dying. I was so weak. It took all my energy that, that I could muster to, to make my way down the corridor, hanging onto the wall to get to the hospital chapel. Said I went to the chapel because I wanted to tell God off. I wanted to tell God, you're a shyster. You've been passing yourself off as a loving God for 2,000 years, but every time anyone wants to get happy, you pull the rug out from under them. I wanted this to be a face-to-face telling off of God. So just as I got into the center aisle of the chapel, I tripped. Lost my balance. Became a little dizzy and fell face down on the floor. And lying there on the floor, I could see etched across the bottom of of the step going up to the altar, these words. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He said, I know God spoke to me that night. I know he did. And she didn't say how God communicated this to her, but what she heard God saying was, you know what this is all about, right? It's about the moment of surrender. It's about bringing you to that moment when you will surrender everything to me. I sense God saying to me, these doctors, they do the best they can, but they can only treat I'm the only one who can really cure you. And she said there with my head down on my folded arms in the center of that chapel floor, reading, I just kept repeating, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I surrendered to God. Next morning, the doctors ran more tests. And he said to her, your liver started working again. We don't know why. We don't know why it stopped in the first place. We don't know why it started up again. And she said, I thought to myself, I know why. God brought me to the brink of disaster to get me to turn my life over to him. I think she would have said that even if her liver hadn't started up again. And sometimes God uses some pretty drastic means to get our attention. Help us understand that we need to surrender control of our lives. Because he wants what's best for us. And giving up control is about letting God into our lives through whatever means he desires. And working in us in whatever way he chooses. The religious leaders to whom Jesus originally addresses this parable are unwilling to open their hearts to God and the consequences are grave. God continues to to call us to surrender ourselves, our control to him. And ultimately, this surrender to God comes back to Jesus. Ultimately, our connection to the owner is about our submission to Jesus. Jesus says here that that it it is the one, the son who was killed that becomes the cornerstone of all that God is going to do. Of all that it means to follow God, it's built on the son. 
And unless we're surrendering to the will and purpose and direction and control of Christ, we're fighting with God. I guess you could say it maybe like this. If you rent from God, then you answer to Jesus. If you rent from God, you answer to Jesus. And abandoning control of our lives to God is not about the church, as important as the church is. Giving up control of our plans and dreams to God is is not about practicing spiritual disciplines, as important as the spiritual disciplines are. Surrendering to God our quest for power and control is not about knowing all the deep things of God and the Bible and theology, as important as knowing is. Taking our hands off of our plans and dreams is not about being a moral person or holding the right perspectives about the great moral issues of society as important as morality is. Letting go is about Jesus. It's about surrender and submission and abandonment to Jesus. It is coming to the place of understanding that if you are a Christian, And your life is on loan from God. And if your life is on loan from God, you answer to Jesus. John Powell says, I have a sign in the mirror of my room. I see it every morning in my groggy condition when I first wake up. And it says, what have you got going today, God? I'd like to be a part of it. Thanks for loving me. He said, it struck me a while back that... I need to fit into God's plans rather than trying to make my own little plans and then asking God to support them. You know, like God give me an A on this test or God do this for me or God do that for me. He said, instead I pray, what have you got going today, God? You love this world. You love this world into life. You created this world. We're all yours. What's my part in the drama today? What part do you want me to play today? I'll play any part you want. You want me to be a success? I'll be a success for you. You want me to be a failure? I'll be a failure for you. It's all about whatever you want. We can argue with God all we want. We can wrestle and fight and grapple and struggle with God for control, but it doesn't change a thing. If you're a Christian, if you desire to be a Christian, a follower of God, then you answer to Jesus. You surrender, you submit, you abandon yourself to Jesus. So what is God asking you to surrender today? Gracious Father, we... Pray that you will help us to hear you and to surrender control to you. Help us to pull back our fingers, unclench our fists, and to let you be in control. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.